Myrna McCollum, Métis Cree lawyer and passionate promoter of Trauma-Informed Lawyering. Welcome to Season 2 of the Trauma-Informed Lawyer Podcast. As you know, I believe that law schools and bar courses are missing a critical competency requirement in their curriculum, Trauma-Informed Lawyering. Becoming a trauma-informed lawyer will, among other things, challenge you to critically reflect on your personal behaviors, beliefs, and biases, call on you to positively transform the way you approach advocacy, guide your practice to avoid doing further harm to others, and ask that you commit to remaining open to learn new and old knowledge you didn't know you needed before beginning your career. Your education starts right here, right now. Transcripts for season two of the Trauma-Informed Lawyer podcast are generously sponsored by the Law Foundation of British Columbia. Okay, if you're a law professor or a law student or a future law student or a lawyer reflecting on your law school experience and how it may have been traumatizing or otherwise mentally or psychologically challenging, we have the perfect show in store for you today. I gathered together a group of courageous and wonderful law students. They made up a class at the University of Victoria Law School's Law 391. We had a conversation about the duty to do better. And what does that mean, particularly for law schools and for legal educators to reflect a trauma-informed approach to the way in which they deliver legal education and a trauma-informed approach to making space for students who bring a lot of trauma into the classroom due to their unique experiences, either as people of color or Indigenous people, folks who've known racism and marginalization and have been otherwise disadvantaged by the law. And they had some really unique and insightful ideas and advice for all of you. So have a seat or take a walk. This is an awesome conversation. And I'm so happy I get to share it with you now, especially on this day, which is the one-year anniversary of the Trauma-Informed Lawyer podcast. We have an awesome group of young people who are all law students. And we're going to talk about how trauma might travel into the classroom at law school and who better to have a conversation about that and give us some ideas and tips to avoid re-triggering and re-traumatizing and not to put anyone on the spot but my good friend Marjorie Floristal is also here. What would you like law professors to understand about trauma? Hi there Uh, my name is Lexia I use she her pronouns uh, and I'm a settler in second year of law school. I think that it's an obstacle to being well in the classroom and it's an obstacle to learning and engaging the way we want to be. Um, I think sometimes when we bring up these issues um, with professors, it's almost seen as if we're um, we're trying to come up with an excuse to get out of things and that's not at all the case. We want to be engaging. We want to be learning. We want to be doing it in a way that's not taking away from our well-being as we go through it. Um, And so I think that's the first thing that comes to mind is just like, please give us the benefit of the doubt that we're trying to engage with this properly and truly, and that sometimes trauma gets in the way. And we are actually putting together a bit of a, a workshop for professors. And we put out a survey to students and a couple of the responses we had were, I had one thing happen to me in class, and then I was out for a week. 
you know, I didn't go to class for a week. I didn't, I didn't open up a book for a week and it's, that's how debilitating it can be. And so it really is something that needs to be addressed so that we can engage and learn the way we want to be doing so. Help me understand or help our listeners understand. Is it that when law students come into law school, you're bringing your own traumas and that law profs need to be mindful that the whole range of trauma is possible in a classroom or, and, or, and is it that some of the content that law professors are delivering to students could be traumatizing just by their nature? Um, Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm a third year law student and I use pronouns, uh, pronouns she and her. I think it's definitely both, Myrna. One thing that comes to mind is oftentimes Profs will talk about um, clients in a case or parties in a case that have experienced mental health concerns as if it's an amorphous third party concept that no one in the room has ever possibly experienced an episode of that manner. And uh, I think it's really alienating. Um, And so I think that the idea that profs should recognize that everyone in the room has trauma and brings with them to law school trauma is a huge, huge part of um, being obviously trauma-informed. And I think lack of that recognition leads to a lot of further harm. And so something that this group talks about a lot is acting like always having in your mind, um, there might be a survivor in the room. There might be someone in the room who's experienced um, these types of experiences, whether it be if we're talking about a case or if we're talking about some sort of study, even if we're talking about experiencing um, addiction and mental health, um, poor outcomes in the profession as a whole, um, talking about it completely separate from law school, I think is problematic as well. Anybody else want to contribute to that? I'm Vyas. I'm a third year student. I'm going to arrive in Settler at UVic Law. I, I think because I grew up with a lot of, with, with a lot of, and around a lot of toxic masculinity in this conversation, there's always a voice in my head of the person, maybe it was me years ago, who tells me, who wants me to be skeptical about this whole conversation, who wants to tell me, like, uh, what is well-being, like, just man up, shut up, and do your job. There's a lot of things I can say to that. One is, I don't think we can do our jobs uh, without doing this work um, and without creating trauma-informed spaces and and trying to mitigate trauma in the law school, if not eliminate it. The other thing I was going to say is, in my experience, especially in legal nonprofit work, one thing I've learned is that a lot of people come into this job field and school because we have trauma. It's the thing that gives us the worldview that makes us want to go to law school, in spite of everything else at law school, to come out with the skills to mitigate trauma in our communities. And so it's not something that we just kind of happen to have in our back pocket that gets triggered once in a while at law school. No, it's the reason we came here. As somebody who's been policed, um, largely for being dark and a migrant, that is one of the reasons why I came to law school. And so people can talk more to this about being in classes that maybe talk about uh, criminal law content. But when I hear about a case, somebody getting pulled over, a dark person, uh, especially a young dark man getting pulled over uh, or street checked. I know that's happened to me. I think about myself in that. It's not that I don't want you to talk about that. I want you to talk about that properly if you're a professor. But I think I think people need to disavow this notion that and 
I as because I've been disavowing myself with this notion that it's it's not just like a like a bone in your body that that you want to treat nicely when you're in the law classroom. No, it's part of the reason you're here. And there's a way we can navigate around it to 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 respect that and I think honor that in the law classroom. In terms of what it is that professors could do to create a trauma-informed classroom or trauma-informed curriculum, or I don't know if it's content warnings, trigger warnings, the way they emphasize certain cases or the selection of cases that they choose for the purposes of certain courses. I'd be interested in hearing uh, what suggestions you have. Hi, so my name is Britt. I'm a 2L um, at the University of Victoria in the Indigenous Law Program. Um, Métis on my mom's side. So I'm just thinking about one specific prof I've had this year who's sort of been doing all the right things, in my opinion. Um, and she started that off before the semester even began. She sent us an email just being like, I've given you guys the option to do a like an anonymous survey, and you can tell me anything you think I should know and it was like super broad and it was like if you have certain like traumas you want to let me know about and I like I took that space and was like yeah like here's the shit that I've dealt with and like I'm gonna have that in the forefront of my mind in your class and this particular prof has also been really good at giving us like a week's warning when we're going to be talking about really heavy stuff and like this is mental health law so Every week is pretty heavy, but um, like some weeks are particularly heavy. And she's been really good at giving us forewarning, checking in throughout the class. And yeah, I just really appreciate that approach and sort of being proactive instead of reactive and having to repair damage. I like the focus to be on preventing it. Thanks, Brett. So what about for those students who maybe don't want to disclose? Because we know that there are many among us who do not want to disclose, right? For all kinds of reasons. What, if any, assumptions should law professors be making before they come in to the classroom or as they're creating this content for students? My name is Romy. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a 3L settler. And regarding what professors can do that doesn't put the onus on students, that puts the onus, let's say, on professors to figure out what to do to make their classes trauma-informed so students don't have to come forward and make these hugely personal disclosures, which can throw students off. I think the most basic step one is content warnings. Someone had the suggestion, in as we were talking about this as a group, go through every single thing that you talk about on your class schedule, on your readings list, and think about what topics are in here that could trigger somebody. And assume, like we said before, that there is someone in the room who has had an experience with all these things that can be traumatizing, you know, that um, over-policing, child apprehension, um, addictions, mental health issues, Islamophobia, like, you know, make a long list and think about what could come up. And step one is content warnings. Put those in your reading list, put those in your syllabus, but at the same time, while law students strive to do every reading possible and strive to read your syllabus all the time, they're not always going to read it. So a content warning that's buried in a 20-page syllabus, like even though that comes with the best of intentions, that's not enough because people are going to miss it. And people need to know before they come into the class that day that this topic is coming up because once it's come up in class, it's almost too late. You don't 
some people don't want to be that person who walks out of class when this topic comes up. Like Britt had mentioned before about a week in advance, flagging that this topic is going to come up, letting students know they don't have to be at class and they're not going to be docked participation grades or anything else for not attending class. Just making that clear off the bat. I want you to be here, but if there's a, for a reason that you can't be here, no questions asked. That's okay. Thanks for that, Romy. I want to ask, as soon as a class starts, that a professor, as they're doing their introductions and kind of welcoming you to this is how the class is going to go. These are the papers. This is the expectations. Do you think it's necessary to being a trauma-informed classroom to have professors have a meaningful conversation sort of on that first day to talk about trauma and to reflect the potential for it in students and to invite you in to have a conversation with them privately or otherwise about how some of the content could be triggering and the steps that they're going to take to mitigate against that. Yeah, AQ Suyuk, good morning. My name is Saul Brown and I'm Hilftjoch and New Channel, and I'm a second year law student at UVic. And I think to your question, Myrna, that yes, there should be that conversation, but even before that conversation in that first class, I think professors need to reflect on their own positionality and their own privilege and where they come from in life. Um, because as an Indigenous person, even taking property law is traumatic. And uh, that is completely an erasure of my people's connection to land, the laws that come from that land, the values, the culture, the language. And coming from a, as an Indigenous person, from four people who went to residential schools from that long line of trauma and not being defined by that trauma, but still being very mindful of it and thinking about that, how the over-incarceration rates of my people, my relatives, you know, my family members and how that affects me in every single class, it seems like, even with tort liability, we're talking about um, Indigenous people being wrongfully accused and how they can't go and seek damages because of um, some arbitrary distinction in the law. And so thinking through this, profs need to be really mindful and aware of their, their own positions in this and how that as Indigenous folks, law is an ongoing source of trauma. Like you could even think of the Indian Act. I'm not an Indian. I'm Hilfjoch. So even for us to have that as a statute, as a federal law that defines me and confines me, and I have a little number, a little status number, like to me, that is, that's some really harmful stuff. And for people just to, to think that this is not a thing or to treat it as if that's just the rule of law is very harmful in and of itself. So I think that's something that professors really need to think about and reflect on in their own positionality and privilege within the society and how their interactions of law are probably very different than, you know, other folks or other groups in the society. Alexia. Um, yeah, I just, I completely second what Saul said. Uh, I think I want to add as well, just really explicitly that law is violence. It's a colonial claim to jurisdiction that comes out of nowhere and that has a monopoly on violence, be it through police, as Via said, through street checks, through incarceration, we're throwing people into cages. And then that state control continues through parole, through criminal records, et cetera. And so 
going into a class and having professors not acknowledge that sometimes you're just kind of looking around being like, am I, is, am I missing something? Like what's happening? And so, yes, I understand we're being professionally trained. We need to go through a contract law class or a criminal law class, but I think at least having that conversation with students, um, would be really validating, especially of those students who've had those experiences with the law or who've had family who had those experiences with the law. And I just think that's something really important, uh, yeah, to to acknowledge in law school. Thanks, Lexi. Marjorie. Thank you for this conversation, because as I sit here and think about my own positionality as um, a Black woman, in fact, a Haitian American, um, so an immigrant, who went to law school and who have the experiences that you're talking about. So I'm thinking about just in my contracts class, I remember way back in the 90s when I went to law school, the only time um, black people showed up in the classroom was in criminal law and one case in contracts law, Williams versus Walker Thomas. And it was about a black woman who was a welfare recipient who bought um, a stereo and um, we had to go over the contract doctrine. And the idea was essentially that she was so stupid and uneducated that uh, she needed the courts to kind of step in and mediate between her and the contract that she signed. And I still, to this day, almost 30 years later, remember that conversation in the classroom. And I actually did have to stand up and walk out because it was a white male law professor talking to a white male student um, and the suppositions they were making about this black woman was more than I could bear. I wish I had had the words to be able to uh, talk about what that experience had done for me. The only thing I had was silence and I knew that I could not be part of that sort of conversation. So my absence, my withdrawal was the only way in which I could speak to it. But now I want to talk about myself as a law professor and having the experience of having to teach the canon, because guess what? I went on to become a contracts law professor and I had to deal with teaching Williams versus Walker Thomas and what that experience was like. And as a professor of business classes, right, there is um, a supposition among my law students that Maybe in criminal law, it's okay to talk about some of these things, but contracts law is not supposed to be talking about these things. And so you're taking up time as a black woman uh, about these issues. And so there is this kind of double-edged sword that we walk um, uh, in taking this path that I'm very conscious of in my own positionality. Um, and also, I... Um, We've come to this moment, I think, of reckoning where we have to acknowledge these issues as, as you've all stated, but um, also recognizing that um, there's a confrontation in that classroom as well, right? So it's not all the students who have your positions. There are also students who feel very much like they're being shamed and guilted and um, somehow made their existence made wrong by the fact that some of us raise these issues of equality and fairness and who gets to appear in the legal canon. So I just kind of, from a law professor's perspective, want to raise some of the things I have to deal with just walking into the classroom and talking about some of these issues. Jessica, thank you, Marjorie, for that. Um, because we do witness this. And just on Friday, this past, like the last yesterday, I walked out of a class because all I had was silence. 
So I recognize that. And you and I told this group that like I walked out because I just couldn't. So I guess for my question is when you have these students and we, I encounter these students all the time um, and they're fragile and it's their white fragility or their settler fragility that really makes them defensive or, you know, guilty. So how then do you deal with these students who feel like because of your positionality as a black woman, as a black law professor, how then do you engage with these students um, without catering to the, the white gaze and that white fragility while still covering off what you need to cover off so they can be competent lawyers in the future? Well, that is such a hard question, Saul, because it's the thing that keeps me up um, at night. So I guess I will come at it sideways and tell you a little bit about how I experienced it from the student role. I've been a lawyer for almost 30 years, but about uh, 10 years ago, I stepped back and became a student myself. So I entered a Jungian psychology program, left the law behind for a while, and I totally lived the student life. And my experience walking into the program was I was the only person of color in the entire room and no one even acknowledged that. Um, and one of the things that I had to do for my master's thesis was write about my individuation process. So in Jungian psychology, it's almost like a spiritual experience that sort of um, reaching towards a higher consciousness is called individuation. But Jung specifically said that black people have a whole layer of the unconscious less than white people. And so his presumption was, as a black woman, I was incapable of attaining that. So how exactly am I supposed to write a thesis that talks about my capacity to do this thing that the person who invented the theory told me I was incapable of doing? And again, none of my professors in the program even acknowledged that as a reality. And so here I was being asked to do this thing that uh, the theory tells me I'm incapable of doing. And in that moment, because I now had years of being a litigator and a law professor under my belt, I had words, right? And I knew what I needed to do. And I brought a far different experience there. And what I did was to educate my professors, the other students on Jung's abject racism and how, uh, how much of a double bind I was in to have to answer that question. And then I was able to go on and um, deal with the question myself. And I used storytelling and I used all of these other skills that I, I now have available to me. So in answer to your question, I do that in my classroom. I bring in storytelling. I bring in multiple gazes um, so that it is not like a single flashlight viewpoint. I'm going to force you to look at it in this way and only this way. Um, I, I articulate my positionality. I mean, I walk into the room and you can visually see that I'm a black woman, but I am very clear about my status as a Haitian American because that's how I identify more than anything else. Uh, my status as uh, a woman married to another woman, um, my status as a person who survived the Trump administration, all of those go into who I am at the moment of teaching these business classes where these issues are not supposed um, to come up. And so uh, I do deal with some of the backlash that you talk about, but I also find 
Maybe it's because I'm teaching Gen Z now and the conversation isn't nearly as new that I don't face the kind of backlash that one might expect, particularly when I use storytelling as a mechanism for moving forward the conversation. All right, just before we leave this topic, I wish you were a prof at UVic and I could take your business class course. I'm not, I don't want to go into business law at all, but I would definitely take your course, Marjorie. Thank you for that. I think, you know, what you all are saying is really aligns with a lot of the training that I do around what trauma-informed lawyering looks like, because for any of you who've attended any of those at least two-hour intros that I do, the first things that I talk about is self-reflection. You cannot offer what you do not have. And so you need to reflect on how your traumas impact the way you uh, attempt to connect with people or the way you disconnect from people. Um, What are your triggers? What are the things that set you off? You should know what those are. How do you bring up the walls? How do you maintain boundaries? And how do you think about how other people might be experiencing you in certain settings? And are you a safe space for people? Like that's a question I put to everybody. I don't think we can offer safety unless we actually possess safety. So in order to create a safe space, you need to be a safe space. I think for many law professors who are listening to this, if you're thinking, oh oh my God, like this, like how do I do this? It really begins with thinking about yourself and thinking about how you answer that question question. Are you a safe space for people? Because if we want law students to feel safe and empowered as they go through law school, it requires a lot of self-reflection and self-evaluation. And what do you know? And what are your sources of knowledge around certain issues? And I think it's quite the challenge if you are, for example, white and privileged and you haven't seen the world through any other lens. How would you know? I think Saul's feedback and response was really quite profound. In addition to self-awareness and thinking about content warnings and thinking about the lived experiences of people who are not like you, where do you think law professors can go to begin to get the education that they don't have or they didn't even know that they needed to do their job in a way that is reflective of the diversity and the diverse trauma? that might come into their classrooms. Damix kanatni anuksukwa nistunuko onistakopi. Good morning, uh, Myrna and Marjorie. Thanks for doing this. Uh, I'm a Blackfoot 2L student. My name is Dustin Fox uh, at uh, UVic Law. A couple of classmates in here with me. But yeah, just to, to your question, I guess in the classroom, what I mostly kind of reflect on is like the philosophical implications of law and how these, like being an Indigenous student, how these philosophies like are in total contradiction with each other. And so where I get my learning, and um, I, I grew up in Southern Alberta, just to contextualize it a bit. And so I went to school at the uh, University of Lethbridge, where I took a class, a couple classes from Leroy Little Bear, and uh, who happens to be my cousin, actually. Um, but we were talking to, uh, we had him in our class a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about his jagged worldviews, um, kind of, uh, his, his paper actually. And I see that almost in every, like in every class. Right. And I heard John Burroughs in one of his classes say that colonization is the water we swim in and you don't realize it until you, until you start to talk about it, like actually. And if, 
And if we're going to talk about colonization, then we have to talk about the erasure of indigenous philosophy. And if that philosophy is continued to be is continuing to be erased, especially in the classroom, then it's futile, especially to indigenous students like like Saul and I, and like most of our like a lot of our classmates. And it's, it speaks to like maybe Blackfoot philosophy a little more, where these professors don't like if they understood like one like concept of indigenous philosophy is uh flux so like in everything's in movement like everything's changing all the time and yet in law everything's kind of treated as like static and very instructional and very templative like you apply this template to to a lot of things that just isn't right that just doesn't supplement the indigenous philosophy but that is also the colonization at work right and it's 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 a I see it's very paradoxical because you don't really understand you're in the the meat grinder until someone points it out, right? And it's just it's it's very profound to me that this indigenous philosophy that could that isn't isn't narrow at all would only be expansive to all professors, even teaching even like teaching behaviors could be supplemented through like an idea of indigenous thought and that is another learning process on its own but at the same time as we continue to learn these different philosophies i think professors will only learn more instead of be restricted to the western law thanks for that dustin alexia yeah i think just in response to your question about sources and where to find that information listen to dustin <laughs> listen to saul right like it doesn't you don't have to go out you don't have to go far there's some incredible students in these classes who've spent more time in law school thinking about these questions than doing actual law readings, right? And not to say that that's what you guys are doing. They're working very hard. <laughs> um, I'll speak for myself when I say that. That, you know, I think it is a delicate balance of not putting the onus on students to do that work. But I think that professors can create that space and really put time and energy and thoughtfulness into their relationships with students in a way that actually does make students want to speak to them and want to have those conversations. And I think that Saul talked about white fragility, like making sure to check that, think about those reactions. If a student has the courage to come to you and give you feedback, stop and think about it before you do anything, right? And before you speak back and before you defend yourself. And so I think that that is, that's just like one first source of <laughs> we're here we want we have these ideas we have these suggestions um please listen to us and please make it a space that we want to share these things with you thank you jessica i'm jessica i'm in third year in the jd program at uvic law i'm metis on my mom's side from treaty eight territory and i'm currently living in sovereign new Hawk territory i think one thing to keep in mind is that the systemic racism and white supremacy that states are founded on is also what the institutions are founded on. The harm that we experience as students, I've heard many times professors express that they've experienced the same harms. And so what I think professors need to be aware of is like, one question to ask in addition to reflecting on positionality is like, how am I replicating the harms that I suffered and like, how do I stop that cycle? And I think one thing that often people might not think of is like, it's in embedded in the structure of the class. And just because you've gone to a class 
in your time as as a student where it's like, okay, we, we need to cover all this material. Do we actually need to cover all this material? Is doing the final exam where students are regurgitating information and not using critical thought the way to think about these issues? Or are there other things that I can bring to this from my experience that could possibly like stop the cycle of harm or at least create a safer space for students to, like Alexia said, um, bring things up because every single class of students is going to be full of people with different experiences. And I think one of the issues with school too is the idea that there's the hierarchy of the professor and the students and that students don't have experiences they're bringing to the table that could inform the class. Um, which is one of the reasons that this class that we're in now was created, the idea to make a space where we can learn from our peers and like actually approach the law in a way where we can discuss things that isn't going to cause us harm. And I, I'm thankful to John for agreeing, John Burroughs for agreeing to supervise this class because it has been a space, for me at least, where we can talk about these things without it being super harmful every day. Like just, I guess, rethinking the structure itself as a microcosm of the law. Thanks for that. Romy? I just want to kind of piggyback off of what other people have said and thinking back to Marjorie's prior question of how do we walk this fine line between some students who are going to be upset that you're having these conversations. And what I think that we're hearing is for many students, these conversations are essential. If we don't have them, harm is being perpetuated against them. And like Jeff said, that's a continuation of harms that are being perpetuated by the state. So you might have to decide which students am I prioritizing? Like it, it's not, we, love, we would love the idea of creating a classroom where every single person feels safe and every single person feels valued and every person feels completely like that's their space to be in. The reality is that's really hard to accomplish because of the spectrum of viewpoints and experiences. But as professors and as classmates as well, we have to think, whose safety are we prioritizing? We're we prioritizing the safety of people who've essentially been safe for generations and generations, or are we prioritizing the safety of people who have been oppressed and who have been subjected to state violence and like now are coming to the school as a way to fight back against that? So if you have to choose, which side are you on? Yes, again, I was also going to add, I've used he, him pronouns. To further piggyback on what everybody's saying, I sometimes imagine who is listening to this and maybe they hear all our voices and think about like, oh, these people are, you know, asking for special treatment. It's all these uh, kids talking about trauma and how we want our experiences validated. And they probably come to a conclusion that these are the students who need coddling. And I just want to say, like, through this class and through the friendships I made with my classmates prior to this, the, this is the toughest group of students at Ubic Law. And that's not just because we've all had to experience stuff in the past and we are able to talk about it. Uh, I also met a lot of people here through really, really vigorous um, and physically demanding direct action that a lot of other people at this law school were not part of, including professors. And so all these notions to disavow yourself of, this is the toughest group of bastards at this law school. And if you're a professor listening to this at another law school, the people who are bringing up these issues, the people who are leaving the class because they can't handle a topic, they can handle it. They've had to handle it. They've lived because they've lived it. 
and everybody else is denying that reality of it and acting as if it's an abstract concept, like it's a cartoon. It's like, no, I was the guy in the car or my friend was the person whose house is raided or mom was deported. We're tougher than you. And we also pay all this money <laughs> to be at this classroom. We want to fucking learn. So figure it out. That's powerful. Thank you. I haven't heard from Will. I'm Will. Uh, I'm a third year law student and a teaching assistant, actually, at UVic. I think, yeah, a lot of uh, what people have been saying, kind of the last few people who have who have spoken, um, are reminding me of, of something that I think about a lot, um, which is just like the value of play for learning and like uh, the value of community. I like there's, I think there's lots of there are lots of classes where it's possible to just like, you don't really go or you don't really pay attention. You read your friend's notes for a couple of days before the final and you pass and it's fine. And that's a class where like people are just kind of checked out and you never needed to be giving lectures in the first place. And, and I think the, this class, I, this study group that we've been doing together is like, is an example of, you can do better things with people's time, right? You can, the, the point to me and like the good learning experiences that I've had are environments where you can you can really like kick ideas around you can like voice things that you aren't really sure about um you can just talk to people and, and you add depth to whatever concept you're supposed to be learning and I, I think so much of the time a good learning experience is based on that feeling of like of freedom to experiment and i like marjorie talked earlier about, about shame and i think that's such a good thing to bring up i i know marjorie was talking about you know some people will feel Kind of challenged by talking about trauma, they'll feel like shame and they'll feel attacked. But I, I think there's also on the other side for a lot of people um, experiencing trauma like that, that manifests as shame a lot. And, and I think shame is just the, the worst poison <laughs> to learning. This kind of ties together with like this fear we have of being unprofessional and like feeling that like we should leave certain things at home. I, you know, the same like basic sickness that the law itself has. Um, the law school should be this like sober place that's just for rational thinking. And like, if you've brought your heart to school with you, you're doing something wrong. And I think this is kind of what, uh, what I hear and like what Vyas is saying that like, no, I think, I think that's, that's the best thing you can possibly do. And like, I, I think the point, like one of the big points for me of, of the entire, you know, trauma-informed education thing is like creating a space where that's possible, right? Where, where people do feel like they can show up for class and all of that you know just just emerges out of a sense of safety and like that's that's what we're trying to create you shouldn't have to abandon a part of yourself to get uh for the purposes of getting a legal education i wanted to piggyback off of what will said thinking about the emotions um there are a lot of emotions in that classroom and um I think for most of your professors, um, and maybe this sounds untrue to you, but the truth of the matter is there's love in that room. I love my students um, in ways that I wasn't prepared for. I want you all to do well so desperately. I recognize as I move towards retirement that um, if I don't pass on everything that I've learned, I've essentially wasted my time. Um, and so it becomes very important for me to sort of um, share sort of knowledge and experience and all of that exchange um, with my students. Um, and, and I feel a lot of that pressure. And I wanna say that there's shame in the room. I, so as I was 
talking, I was thinking about the shame that I experienced as um, a law professor when I got it wrong. And three moments maybe came to mind for me. One is an experience I'll never forget. I was teaching European Union law, all things. Um, and um, I had not been prepared. I had um, a Turkish um, law student and German students in my class. And I had not been preparing myself because I'm an American, um, that there would be something coming up in the room. And it was having students really say things about um, a student from another ethnicity that I would have been prepared for if they had been saying that about black students in the U.S. So the ways in which I was primed to sort of stand in for black-white issues, but I was not ready to stand in for Turkish-German issues, and I failed. Um, uh, and my student was harmed. Um, and at the end of that class, I remember going up to the student and apologizing for my failure. Um, and it was a moment where I sort of recognized that I needed to do better, have have a better kind of a plan for how to deal with those issues. And so as I'm talking about that, I'm just reflecting on often your professors in the room get it wrong um, and it lives inside of us all of the time. So um, I want you to know that, that we do recognize when we fail. And so I talk about the experience of my contracts professor failing. I still remember that moment. And I have to tell you, I have more compassion for him these days than I did then because I've because of the moments I've failed. Another moment that I can remember is when um, a contract student came to my office hours and this was after midterms and the student was um, uh, so pained and started crying, everything coming up. And I had no words and no capacity to hold that. And I remember just saying, let's talk about contracts, right? Because I didn't know how to talk about all of the other things going on in that person's life. And, you know, frankly, as lawyers, we're not um, therapists um, and could probably do much more harm trying to pretend to be. But that was another moment of shame that sort of woke me up to the work that I needed to do within myself because what law school did to me and law practice, I practiced for 10 years before I became an academic, but what those two things did to me was absolutely divorce my head from my heart. Um, and I had to find my way back um, by doing a lot of outside work. Um, so uh, to bring this to a close, and I don't quite know how, but as I'm listening to sort of um, some of the emotions that are coming up for all of you, right, um, as students, I want you to know that there's a resonance um, for many of us as your professors. Um, and what we're trying desperately to do is to break through that wall because we absolutely care about you and we absolutely want you to do well. And often when we fail, it's because we've defined doing well as training you to, quote, think like a lawyer, which is um, a mode of thinking that we sometimes define as being div divorced from the heart. I've now come to understand that thinking like a lawyer is um, a way of deductive and inductive reasoning and um, a use of precedent and 
all of those forms are what some of you have called templates. Um, and what we need to do is to not divorce that from the emotions. That's what we need to all get better at. Um, and many of us are trying. Thanks, Marjorie. Nicole? I'm Nicole. I'm a 3L. Perhaps my comment will seem a little bit insensitive after Marjorie's. So it came to me before Will spoke. Um, I'm sure there's many law professors like Marjorie who care quite a bit. Um, but I was thinking about the ones who maybe are listening and thinking that this is a lot of work for them to do to change their approach to completing this course that or to instructing this course that they maybe haven't changed for years. But I just kind of think that an, an entire area of law can change with one Supreme Court decision. Um, so I feel like, you know, it's probably not that much work to add content warnings or to be more mindful. Um, so I don't think maybe the argument that it's a lot of work is a valid excuse. Uh, good point, Nicole. And it brings me to my next question. Where there are professors who refuse to consider the traumas that either they're bringing into the classroom or that their students are bringing into the classroom, what is the potential harm? We're talking about you all and you're a whole new beautiful generation. What is the potential harm? I've heard some of you say you get up and you walk out of class that it's really hard to come back into the classroom, hard to feel or even impossible to feel safe in that environment. Hi, Myrna. Thank you. Um, my name is Sophia. I use she, her pronouns and I'm a 3L. I, I think we think a lot about the harms that come immediately in the classroom in terms of people having to walk out, people not taking in the content, people feeling disillusioned with law school and disconnected from law school in general. Um, but I also just wanted to bring in that this is a profession that has incredibly high rates of mental illness and substance abuse to a tremendous degree. And this perpetuation of a system where we're traumatized and trying to desensitize ourselves from the material and take a step back from the material and not being able to engage in it with a safe way is part of what's creating this profession where so many people are relying on toxic substance abuse and are so, so depressed and using terrible coping mechanisms. So it's not just right now, while we're in law school, this really has implications for the rest of our lives and for how we interact with our coworkers and our clients for the rest of our careers. Well, and implications for those who end up making up the profession, right? So then we repeat these really horrible patterns that currently exist. It seeps into every single class and you end up being the only person saying the same thing over and over and over again and disassociating. And it comes to a certain point where you're like, I have to tell 500 years of history to come even close to the point that I'm trying to make. And it does get to the point where it's like, why am I going to class? Like, why don't I was talking with a friend the other day, and if I'm going to get mad, why don't I just read this at home, not go to class? And if there's classes that are 100% exams, then what happened for me is by the time I'm in third year, I'm taking the classes with 100% exams so that I don't have to go to class 
and experience this every single day. And for me, I figured out the template. So I'm just applying that template to every single exam and like not even engaging with anything because I don't need to because people aren't, I don't feel like I'm actually learning anything in these spaces. And I tried to go to class at this, like every semester I've given it a chance at the start and it without fail, almost every single class has given me that experience where I'm like, this is not worth it. Like, it's not worth it to be here. And, you know, there was a class, two classes in one day where people weren't aware uh, that they were bringing up really heavy, sensitive topics. There has to be a different way to go about this. Because like Nicole said, everything can change with one Supreme Court decision. So like, really, do you need to go over 100 cases? And, and like really prioritizing as a professor what assignments you're asking, because often I feel like some of the most problematic things that have happened in class have been from the assignments offered by the professor and the way that that discussion is structured so that students do have like an entire class of non-Indigenous students discussing the pros and cons of fiduciary duty that's like imposed on Indigenous peoples. That was great, Jessica. B.S. Yeah, real quick, I really appreciated uh, Sophia's point about how in the long term, lawyers, uh, yeah, huge rates of depression, suicide, substance abuse, everything horrible, but they say it with a smile on their face when they talk about that in class. Uh, most of them do. They bring it up as a, as a glamorous part of the role. And if you can't handle it, you're not cool. And I don't really know how to close off that point, but that is just kind of endemic in the law school. And you kind of look around at the classroom at your peers and they're all nodding when you hear that um, because of what they see on TV and whatever law TV shows they watch to get in there. Who do we have next? Lauren? Yeah, I think people have spoken a lot about how these harms that we experience in the classroom affect the people that have been harmed. And I think that is a really excellent point for our profs to keep in mind. But I think one of the other things, too, is that. When you don't step in when someone, a student, has brought up a view that's problematic and maybe not with ill intent, but maybe ignores systemic racism because that's not something that they have had to grapple with in the way they walk through the world, by not addressing that comment, you embolden that view, you validate it, and then it becomes someone else's problem and they go out into practice and no one has challenged that view And then it becomes the problem of if they're a prosecutor, the person on trial, it becomes the problem of all the people that they interact with in the workplace, that they don't understand how these systems are operating at the disadvantage of some. And I think that amazing profs like Marjorie do a great job of bringing that up. And Marjorie, when you speak of kind of moments that you that keep you up at night and your mistakes you're trying and everyone's going to make mistakes. But what I don't see sometimes is our older white male professors trying and trying to speak power to power to these white folks. And primarily, I will say white dudes that show up in class. And I've seen racialized profs try to speak to these issues and it falling on deaf ears. And so what I would like to see is profs, particularly those with tenure, that for lack of a better word, sticking their neck out on an issue like systemic racism is not going to get them in hot water. They're not going to be met with the kind of um, just almost like heat or derision that I feel like sometimes folks of color 
um, even in positions of power, like a prof are met with from like students in the room. Um, I get frustrated when I don't see them addressing it. And even in this conversation, I feel like to profs listening to this, that might feel like we're putting them on blast. Um, it's an act of love. Like we, we know that our profs are amazing, capable people. We know that they care. They wouldn't teach us if they didn't, or at least I hope they wouldn't. And so us trying to call them into this conversation about being trauma-informed, about making it easier for folks to show up into these conversations, but then also sending out professionals into the world that will improve the practice is our act of love to you. It's us turning around and thanking you for all the work that you do and saying, we know that you're capable of being better. So here are some things that you can think of. And I think that oftentimes we think about this with the medical profession, right? Like you can treat the symptoms after it's already occurred, or you can try to get ahead of the cause. And I think that profs in law schools have a really good opportunity to try and alleviate some of these issues we see in the profession over and over and over by just stepping in. Or if you don't feel comfortable in the moment stepping in, addressing it maybe after the fact, something like that, calling people into conversations and flagging that some things might be problematic or flagging that, you know what, I didn't do a great job there, but I know that and I hope you're okay. And if you need something from me, please ask. Like, just those sorts of conversations, I think, would make a world of difference because it isn't just isolated to the law school. It flows out into the profession, both what behavior of yours is going to be acceptable and what you can ask from those around you as well. Yes. To add on to what Lauren's been bringing up about uh, people around us, um, there's a lot of people in our classrooms who are going to be judges and prosecutors. Um, and it's not just about decisions they're going to make in five years, 10 years, whatever. Some people are going to be working at the DOJ in the summer after 1L. Some people are going to be clerking right after law school. People who I don't trust with my car uh, are going to be writing decisions for appellate uh, courts, basically, for lazy judges. Like, I don't trust you, and I'm seeing you act in the classroom. Like, uh, <laughs> that's just what was shouting up to me. Um, and the other thing that, I, that has been going on in this conversation, talking about the workload that maybe our demands put on to professors. You don't have to be therapists. You, you don't have to, it's not a lot of work, I think, to be able to create a safe classroom. I trust everybody in this class that we have together to be able to do that at this point. None of my friends here are therapists. Um, so I don't see the problem. Uh, it's just a novel thing right now. It's just new. It's a new issue. And so there's new types of ways of thinking. Um, you have to rewire your brain. It's not that you have to go do another degree. Like you can still, you can be a better law professor um, by taking our advice. Like we've had to learn this because we've had to live it also. Um, so for any professor listening to that, like I don't, I don't buy that excuse. Like it's, it's right there. You just kind of can't see it right now. Saul? Yeah, I just... I really agree with everything that's being said. And I just want to say like, there is this power dynamic in the classroom and, you know, but oftentimes we forget how powerful we are as students and the duty and responsibilities we have to the next generation of law students and little law babies coming through. And so reclaiming that space, um, you know, really owning that like this um, and being standing in our truth no matter how hard it might be to stand in that truth when we're dealing with trauma and being trauma informed. And I think there's a lot of power in being a truth teller. There's a lot of power in that. And like Myrna, to me, you're a truth teller. 
right? And I don't want to fangirl over you right now on your podcast, but you are, you're a truth teller. And Marjorie, you spoke about your responsibility to pass on all your knowledge onto the next generation so we could break these harmful cycles that do perpetuate violence and harm. And so that's what I think it's all about here. And as students, what we have, and to Vyas's point and Sophia's point, we have this duty and responsibility to do better, to hold you accountable in a good way and invite you in, right? And I think that's what we're talking about here is, and so I don't want to make it like, you know, we're these passive people who come into your classroom and are not going to say anything and, and hold you accountable as that next generation of people who have a positive duty as an Indigenous person who's the first in my family to go to law school, I have a positive duty and obligation on myself to make sure that the next young person who wants to come to law school for my family has it better and doesn't get as harmed or has a better experience and can actually learn and learn vibrantly and healthily in a space that will respect them as an Indigenous person. And so I just wanted to really make that point about, you know, us reclaiming our power and putting the onus back on the law profs to do better by standing in our truth and not having any shame about it either. Not, not saying, oh, this is something we don't talk about in law, but yes, this is something we need to talk about in law to practice law and not just colonial law, not just the common law, but indigenous law and other forms of law and the way we practice law outside of the common law. Brit. Um, this might be a bit of a tangent, but I'm just thinking about like the power of, <clears throat> of community. And like a lot of times when we've had like really traumatic days at law school or like we knew um, like we were going to be talking about residential schools in a really problematic and unsafe way. It was the, like, it was us, it was the students. It was like indigenous law students specifically who were like, okay, like, here's the game plan. Like we're going to meet here after class. Like we're going to have food. We're going to smudge. Um, And yeah, like just the value on community and it doesn't have to be like an us versus them with the profs, um, like they're invited to that community too, but there also has to be like, they have to recognize their space in the community. And when we invite them in, like we've received a bit of pushback and profs saying like, they don't feel safe having this conversation with us. And I just think that's so disappointing um, when we're trying to invite them in and sort of being met with like, no, I don't want to hear it. So I think a way that profs can do better is to just like honor the community that we've created and that we're inviting them into. I don't think that's a tangent at all, Britt. I'm glad that you brought that up because I was thinking as I was listening to all of your beautiful perspectives, I was thinking about how you know, we've been talking about the duties or responsibilities or obligations um, on the individual professor, what they can do in the classroom. But what can law schools do to support professors who need and want trauma-informed training, understanding, awareness, so they could bring it into the classroom? Um, I want to put that question to you. And I think that's a great last question to have as we start to close this conversation. But the other piece that I also want you to also think about further to Britt's uh, comment, how do we make space for collective care within the law school? How do we care for each other? Sophia? Um, Just a really quick point is that uh, we've seen the university bring in speakers such as yourself to talk about trauma-informed practice for the students, but 
We would love to see the university bring in antio workshops, trauma-informed practice workshops, all sorts of education like that for the faculty specifically. And I know that we have some amazing props who are there at the workshops for the students and who are doing the work. But if we could have those workshops being funded for the faculty with a pressure for the faculty to attend and um, with a focus specifically on legal education and how they can do better, I think that would make a world of difference institutionally because then it wouldn't just be the individual professors that are trying hard on their own, it would be an institutional change. Good point. And we're looking at institutional change. Like that's the whole point. That's the whole point of this podcast, The Trauma-Informed Lawyer, is to change the institution, to change the profession, to think about the ways we are traumatized by the work we do because we blindly uphold the status quo or we buy into this idea that we can compartmentalize and leave our traumas at home um, or that our work is not traumatizing us yet every day it is and it's evident when we're drinking a lot or taking drugs or doing random things that don't align with our values alexia um, really just to second what sophia is saying um but maybe put it a little more bluntly of put your money where your mouth is. Um, You know, like trauma informed is this buzzword that's been going around a lot. And the school and a lot of schools love to talk about how much they take it seriously. Um, And exactly what Sophia was saying of like, maybe they're going to try and create a course for it. And then there's all this advertising that goes out. And then we come to this school expecting that and then not being in those good spaces. Um, And I think at the school level, yes, it's going to take money because it's going to take training. Uh, It's going to take anti-O training. It's going to potentially take some history lessons for some profs, if I'm very honest. Um, And that needs to, yeah, that that needs to happen. Um, And that is especially necessary if they're going to start using that language and if they're going to start presenting their schools in that manner. Um, That means that they have to have put time in professors, in administration, being able to actually speak to those things and create those spaces. I also think that um, there needs to be more transparency about how decisions are made at the administrative level. There have been various things coming up in our school and we've tried to give feedback and we don't know who to and who sits on one committee and just having more active student representation in those spaces and trusting us that we are all adults who have lots of experiences to bring to the table and things to offer. Um, and then to pay students to do that work when they are doing that work. Um, the fact that we're paying to take these classes and then we're paying to educate professors is a lot. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to take money, like solving a lot of issues and they just need to put it up, I think. Britt says in the chat, I don't want trauma-informed to become the new reconciliation buzzword. Do you want to comment on that, Britt? Sure. So, yeah, like I've been seeing that word come up more and more often. And like, while it's very... It, it gives me optimism at the same time I'm skeptical, right? Like I remember when we start, first started hearing about reconciliation, like it was like, yeah, this sounds awesome. And then very quickly it just became another like thing to insert into speeches. Like people insert land acknowledgements and don't really like, it's just pandering. It's just, it's all optics. Right. Um, and like, I see people talking about being trauma-informed, but they're the same people perpetuating the harm. Um, like, it's, it's there's, like, a dissonance there, I guess. 
And I just, I ask people like that to like really reflect on what you're saying and what your actions are. That's a really good point. So just in closing folks, any final comments, final hopes, wishes, dreams you want to put in the universe, Saul? Yeah. As I think about this and, you know, this uh, institutional transformation that we're collectively envisioning here on this podcast, I think about how BIPOC communities have always taken care of each other. In fact, that's how we survived the atrocities at the hands of these same institutions. So we have these ways of community aid and taking care of each other that we use in law school. This class is one of them. And in our case, in the Hilfsdorf case, we have a potlatch that's governed by our so our laws. And we often invite people, outsiders, outside the community into our sacred space to ceremony with us, to take care, to, as you say, build relationships. But we only do that to those people who deem themselves worthy. To those types of people who we want to share those sacred spaces with, those those spaces of taking care of each other. So to these institutions, to these law profs, these law deans, be the type of person who we would invite into our big house for a potlatch. Be the type of relation that we would invite into ceremony and I think that's when we'll start to see some real change happen. Yes. Saul brought up a really good point there. And I just want to give credit uh, and acknowledge, but not glamorize what happened to make this class happen. Uh, Jessica had to fight with administration to make this class happen. Saul talked about how we, we know how to show each other care and we come together and that's how we survive. But we had to struggle to even just make this class. It wasn't sanctioned by the university off the bat. There was pushback. Um, we we got help from some key people to do that, but it wasn't easy. Uh, and so think about that and don't, gla- and don't glamorize that. Uh, we shouldn't have to struggle to be able to live together. And that's what we're trying to do here. And we're creating some beautiful things here. And we're, we're, we're doing something really good for the law school by pushing up against it. We shouldn't have to push up against it to do it. But the other point I wanted to make is that I often hear when we talk about this or I anticipate hearing that the professors who do this harm are all the old white male professors. It's not usually when I have those classes for me, just in my experience, I've already checked out of that class. I'm not thinking about what their role in it is. Like I already know what their role in it is, no matter what they say. Um, But when it's a racialized prof. That's when I get hooked in sometimes, and I really think I'm gonna I'm gonna be in a safe space. But so often, racialized professors just perpetuate the same things, but using different language, and almost creating uh, an image of a safe space. And it turns out to just be as unsafe as all the other ones. And if you're a racialized prof listening to this, it's I I understand why you're doing that because I perpetuate. Uh, whiteness and anti-blackness and colonialism all the time because I've been colonized too. I understand the pressure. I understand that it's not easy um, to just let go of all that, Um, especially if you're a law professor in the colonial law. But just because you have had experiences like ours doesn't automatically mean that you're creating a safe space. There's just like, those are the props who disappoint me the most. 
some of the profs at UVic who have given me the most grief about having to miss classes that were decently traumatic to me. I don't really know how to close that off, but this isn't just about old white male profs. This is about all law profs. And I understand why that happens. We totally do. Um, but that's, it's not enough. I'm sure they know that. Sounds like it's even more harmful when it comes from someone you don't expect it to come from. And then you have to also then think about how they got there and the kinds of compromises they've had to make to get to stay in that environment, maybe, and to succeed in that environment. Marjorie? Oh, I'm still taking that one in. That one hit um, really to the bone. But thank you for that. Um, It feels like an important wake-up call. Thank you all for trusting me and being part of this really, this critical conversation that just needed to be had and needs to be heard across the world. And that's exactly what's going to happen. It will be heard across the world. So thank you all very much. Well, there you have it, folks. Another awesome episode with some pretty insightful and self-aware guests. Remember these voices that you've heard here today because they are the future of this legal profession. One day they will be our judges and our chief judges. Maybe even one day our minister of justice and maybe even a Supreme Court justice. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please leave a rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. If you want to give me any feedback, you can find me on Instagram at the Trauma Informed Lawyer, as well as Twitter at the TIL Podcast. Until next time, take care, everyone. This episode was recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Squamish, tsleil and Musqueam people.